You don't know flag. You Don't Know Flat, a podcast full of stories about retro gaming, retro computing, video games, arcade games, and technology from a guy who was there and still is. My name is Rob O'Hara, but for the next 30 minutes, you can call me Flat. Episode 148, Mod Ships. Hello and welcome to another episode of You Don't Know Flat. I am your host, Rob Flack O'Hara, and on today's show, we will be talking about mod chips, these little naughty chips that allow you to play things that you're not supposed to be able to play on your consoles. So uh, I have been recording this episode in bits and pieces and saving them to my Commodore data set. And as you guys know, it takes a little bit of time to uh, load things back from those slow cassette drives. So while this episode loads back from my Commodore 64, we've got a little bit of time to chat during this week's loading time. Loading time. Loading time. Loading time. First of all, hi. How are you? I'm fine. I'm not fine. I'm okay. <laughs> My knee hurts. I uh, I think I uh, slipped on some of the ice. You know, I don't know if you noticed, but um, the Midwest has been having an ice storm for the past month, it seems like. Just... Uh, Finally dried up this week, but um, I think I might have stepped wrong on the ice or something. Isn't it amazing that um, when I was a kid, I used to jump off of my parents' roof. I would climb up on the roof. I'd climb up on the fence that was next to the house, get up on the roof, and then jump off the roof, you know, like I was the uh, $6 million man or something. And now I have to be careful when I step off of a curb. (laughs) It seems ridiculous, but... um, yeah, I think I might have stepped, slipped on some ice or stepped wrong or something, so my knee has really been killing me, and now my back's hurting, I think, because my knee is hurting, and I've been walking funny on my knee, so, eh, so much fun to be falling apart, but uh, anyway, I'm doing just fine sitting in this chair here, so that's good news, and also, all this chair sitting time I've had, I've been working on a new project, it's called Vintage Video Game Ads. You can find it on Facebook over at, if you just search for Vintage Video Game Ads, or if you're not on Facebook, you don't even need a Facebook account to see it. You could go to facebook.com forward slash Vintage Video Game Ads, all one word. And this project started, oh gosh, unofficially, it started probably five years ago. I had a bunch of old um, computer magazines and video game magazines, and I really just like, well, I, I like the articles, you know. I sound like a a Playboy subscriber. I really just uh, read the articles. But um, I also enjoy looking at the video game ads. You know, when I was a kid, uh, young Commodore user, young Apple user, you would see these wonderful, um, just, just awesome ads and magazines. You know, we didn't have the internet. There weren't for the most part, uh, running game ads on television at that time. So if you wanted to find out about new games, you either found out, uh, you know, from friends or maybe someone mentioned it on a BBS or whatever. But a lot of times we found out about them uh, by looking in magazines and you would see these ads with these awesome graphics and, uh, you know, just cool paintings and stuff like that. And so looking back at these ads brings back a lot of memories to me, just 
um, flipping through the ads and, and, uh, you know, just, just all these memories of, uh, I, I uploaded some last night of, uh, pit stop and PlayStation or uh, PlayStation. I got PlayStation on the mind for this episode, um, uh, pole position and pit stop and pit stop two, And, you know, just, um, I saw some cool, I saw some from games that I didn't even know there were ads for like Aztec and, um, iron size, just some really old computer games that I, I grew up playing as a kid. And, uh, I just, I just love looking at them. So probably about five years ago, I scanned in all the ads that I could find from magazines that I owned. And, uh, I created this page on Facebook about two weeks ago and I just uploaded all those ads and the response was awesome, man. People started liking them and sharing them and, and liking the page and, Within like a day, I had a hundred likes, and then uh, within a few days, I had two hundred likes, and it's really kind of taken off. But unfortunately, I didn't plan this out very well, and I uploaded all the ads that I had all at one time. So uh, once people had gone through the ads, and uh, you know the ones I'd already uploaded, there wasn't anything left to upload. Now I could go back and share them or make comments and things like that, but that's not very much fun. So what I have started doing is going through my PDF collection of magazines. I'm taking those and converting them to JPEGs, pulling the ads out, and then uploading those ads uh, to the Facebook page. And I'm doing it just a few at a time so that I don't smother everybody with uh, a thousand ads, you know. So I'm putting uh, common ads together, like the race car ads. I've been uploading this week's um, Olympic-themed ones. You might have seen the uh, Summer Games and Winter Games ads went up. Uh, I found some, a lot of the magazines in 1984 uh, obviously, which was the uh, Summer Olympics in 84, had Olympic-themed ads. So I'm uploading some of those. So it's it's been a lot of fun, and oh my gosh, I have a backlog right now of close to a 1,000 ads <laughs> that I need to upload, and that's going to take a long, long time. So if you are into looking at old uh, video game ads, I'm trying to, by the way, I'm trying to not make it so computer-centric. Right now it's a lot of computer stuff just because that's what I scanned in first. But I just uh, got all the ads out of all the Atari Age magazines, and I'm getting ready to do some Nintendo and Super Nintendo ads, and I have some arcade stuff planned. So, you know, just a big variety. If you liked playing games in the 80s, maybe early 90s, maybe late 70s, but pretty much the 80s, it kind of seems, is what most of these magazines are from, go check out Vintage Video Game Ads on Facebook. And for every like a kitten I don't know what a kitten. I don't kill a kitten or a kitten lives. I don't know what it's supposed to be. I get nothing from this. (laughs) No money, no sponsors, no nothing. It's just, if you like seeing ads, that's a good place to go see them. So, Hey, I must've had a fast load stuck in this cartridge here because, uh, uh, everything seems to be done loading. There's no disc drive sound because I loaded it off the cassette. Ha ha. I tricked you. So anyway, let's go ahead and get started with this episode of you don't know flack which is all about mod chips. Now, before listening to this episode, you might want to go back, if you haven't already heard it, and listen to episode 104. Uh, Episode 104 is all about console copiers, and console copiers were kind of the predecessor to mod chips. Console copiers were devices that you could plug into consoles like the original Nintendo and Super Nintendo and Sega Genesis, uh, all the way up through, well, all the cartridge-based systems, basically through the Nintendo 64. 
And what they did was they allowed you to do two things. Number one, they allowed you to back up cartridges onto some sort of media. Normally that was floppy disks. Later in the um, Nintendo 64 era, some of them use zip drives. But basically it let you copy a cartridge over to some other form of media. It also lets you load games off of that same media without requiring the cartridge. So let's say you had um, Super Mario Brothers for the Nintendo. You could dump that game onto a diskette and then remove the cartridge and load it back later from the diskette. So that was the idea of a cartridge copier. Um, I talked on that episode a little bit about security through obscurity and security through minority. And I'm going to refer to those again, but basically to sum those up, security through obscurity is a concept that uh, basically what that means is you're protecting something through obscurity. You're hiding it from someone. Uh, The classic example to that is uh, you hide the house key under the welcome mat in front of your house. So you've obscured that key. So if you don't know where the key is, uh, then you have security. The problem is once someone finds the key, they have the key to your front door. And when they tell other people, they now know where the key is too. So security through obscurity works until someone finds what you've hidden. (laughs) And then it doesn't work anymore. Security through minority is a slightly different concept. And the idea of security through minority is that you have security because Uh, Whatever it takes to access the security is something that not very many people have. The example I believe I used on 104, one that I've read before, is let's say the key to your house is hanging outside uh, from a tree that's seven foot tall. So only people who are seven foot tall can access that key. So maybe you know where the key is, you know where to find it, but unless you're seven foot tall or have a pair of stilts or something, you can't access the key. Security through minority also doesn't really hold up in the long run uh, because once people figure out what they need, then they also have access to your security. So what we're going to do is roll back the hands of time here. We're going to go back through generations of consoles. You know, as consoles are released, uh, we as people tend to classify them as generations. So um, what most people think, I believe third gen is a Atari... Um, and that may even be second gen. You've got the, the eight bit generations. Uh, the fourth gen is, uh, the 16 bit consoles, the super Nintendo, Sega Genesis, stuff like that. We're going to start talking about the fifth gen of consoles. This includes the Nintendo 64. We're not going to talk about the Nintendo 64 because it was cartridge based. And I talked about it on the console copier episode, but we are going to talk about, the Sony PlayStation. We're also going to talk, I'm going to talk just briefly here at the very beginning about the 3DO, if you've ever heard of the 3DO, and the Amiga CD32. They were both uh, CD-based consoles, the 3DO and the Amiga CD32, and they operated under security through minority. The reason that they did this is because when those consoles were released, nobody had CD-ROM burners. Uh, And so what a great security plan. I mean, why would you need copy protection if nobody has CD-ROM burners? Unfortunately, within a few years, everybody began buying CD-ROM burners. And what they found out is that those CDs for those consoles don't contain any copy protection at all. So this is uh, an example where you can see where security through minority worked for a little while, 
But once people got CD-ROM burners, that sort of copy protection failed. Then we have, for that generation, like I said, we have the Nintendo 64, and we know we all know the story about how Nintendo uh, went with a cartridge-based solution instead of CD-ROM. And we have the Sony PlayStation. And we're going to talk a lot about the Sony PlayStation on this episode. The Sony PlayStation came with a form of copy protection, hardware-based, well, eh, hardware-software combination-based copy protection that prevented people from copying the games and playing CDR backups on it. Now, there's a few reasons why you would want to do that. And the first and the main one and the most obvious one is you want to protect yourself from piracy. Obviously, I'm sure that you've all heard whenever um, a new console comes out, you'll see all these reports that say, oh, the new PlayStation 4 costs, you know, $1,000 to make. And gosh, they're only selling it for 400 or 500 So how can they possibly make any money? But the way they make money is over the long-term return of software. Also, peripherals is uh, another way, like uh, extra controllers and things like that. But, um, you know, whenever they make a game and then they, you know, the the game, you take out your game development costs and whatever your uh, production costs are, and the return of that is very high. So in the long run, they'll make a lot of money back on the software. So obviously, you don't want people copying your software because that's going to cut into the long-term profits of your console. But there's other reasons why you would want to have copy protection on uh, a game console, and one is region control. Region control is the ability for a manufacturer to control which parts of the world get what game. So there may be games that are only for Japanese uh gamers there might be ones that are only for the u.s that for some reason they might want to delay a release in one part of the country uh or uh, you know one part of the world they may want to um there's just lots of different reasons why you would want to do that but uh but by doing by building in region control that's a, a part of security that you might want to build into your console you also want security to protect yourself from other companies and this is something that uh, dates all the way back to the Atari 2600. If you if you uh, remember in the Atari 2600, you had the Atari, Atari company, and they were making Atari games. And eventually people left that company and formed Activision and people formed Magic and people formed all these different uh, companies. And they were also able to churn out Atari games. They didn't control, Atari didn't control who was able to make cartridges. Uh, and this is pretty much, if you go back and listen to my episode, there's a You Don't Know Flack episode about the video game crash of 83, but you have this entire flood of cartridge and there's no quality control going on. So by putting protection, uh, if you move forward to Nintendo, the NES, they did the exact opposite. If you wanted to make a game, you had to go through Nintendo and they would limit how many games you could go through and they would do quality control. Um, how much quality control is questionable if you've played some of the Nintendo games I've played. But uh, the idea is there that Nintendo controlled production and the release schedule of games. So you don't want, Sony doesn't want um, just anybody to be able to burn CDs and sell them out of their garage. They want some sort of quality and they want to control the uh, production and the release schedule of games. So that's another reason why you would build copy protection in your console. And then also you want protection from 
your competitors. You don't want other people to be able to disassemble your games and see how they're made. You don't want, um, you know, Nintendo to be able to look at how your games are structured or whatever. So uh, that's another another one. But like I said, the biggest one, um, I think, is the protection of piracy or from pirates. So on the original PlayStation, I'm going to talk very briefly about how copy protection worked. And basically, there was a small area that's in the boot sector and it's called the country code. So when the PlayStation fires up, that is stored in the pre-gap subcode. It's at the very beginning. So when the PlayStation fires up, it sends this little country code to the console and it lets the console know uh, what country that game is from. So if you have a U.S. PlayStation, and we're still talking about the original PlayStation, you have a U.S. PlayStation, it's looking for a U.S. country code. If it sees a Japanese country code, for example, it will not play that game. Uh, and you also, So you have European, basically uh, Japan and U.S. are your major country codes for these. Um, now that little section of the disc is readable by the PlayStation, but it's essentially not readable by standard computer-based CD-ROM drives, and it's definitely not writable by CDR drives. So uh, if you take a PlayStation disc and try to copy it, when you burn it back, it will not contain that uh, the country code that's stored in that subcode. Now, um, there were a lot of rumors at that time as to how Sony was doing that. People didn't really know or understand uh, about the country code yet. It hadn't completely been reverse engineered. One theory that a lot of people had was that the bottom, you know, the bottom of a PlayStation, the original PlayStation discs were black. And so people thought, oh, well, you have to have black CD-ROMs to work on the PlayStation, which later on we found out that wasn't true. Uh, another theory was that Sony was uh, purposefully putting bad sectors on CD-ROMs and so uh, that the drive would look for those bad sectors. And if it didn't find them, it would crash. That also was not true, but that was another rumor. And and um, the other rumor was that the copy protection was outside the area, like physically outside of where a CD-ROM drive could go. And that's also not true. Um, it's just in because of the way that it's written and in the subcode, um, it's, it's kind of hard to explain. If you want to go look up, um, uh, what's the term wobble, look up uh, PlayStation wobble. And, uh, you can see, I mean, people have actually dissected how it works now. It's interesting if you're a, a techie nerdy type guy. Um, but anyway, so, uh, when you turn your console on, you have to have that country code when that goes back and, and your PlayStation says, yes, I am the right country code. This is the right game. Then it will load the game. So, before there were mod chips, people figured out that you could swap in and out discs. And so the idea is that the motor spins twice. And you may have seen YouTube videos of people doing this and people modified their PlayStation. You know, if you hit eject and you open the PlayStation, it stops, you know, running your game. So you can't just use a normal eject. But the idea was that you would put a normal game in, an original game, get the, the country code off of it, and then the drive motor would stop for just a second. And when you do that, you would swap in really fast your copied game and it would load it. I was never able to do this. I, you know, I've seen people online. I know that it worked. Um, it works better if you have things like um, the Game Shark and things like that, action, what is it, action replay or whatever. Um, but I was never able to just 
you know, people said, oh, if you're fast enough, you could just swap an original and swap a copy in there or whatever. I could never do that. But that was um, uh, the first attempts at playing CDRs. But eventually, someone invented a mod chip, which is short for modification. Uh, so what a mod chip does, very simply, is send, no matter what you put in the drive, it sends back the correct country code. So in theory, if you take a piece of paper that's round like a CD, you put it in that drive, you turn on, it's not going to play it, but it would, your PlayStation would say, yep, this is the right country code. It automatically sends that, that code back that the console itself is looking for. The first mod chip I ever bought, I want to say I paid about $35 for, and I think it only had four wires. Now, the reason why I say I think is because I bought many generations of mod chips uh, for the original PlayStation, and when they were released and who made them decided how many wires were on, and I'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, but So it was a little tiny mod chip, and you had to disassemble your PlayStation, and then there were four wires that you had to solder. Now, I had never soldered anything before in my life. I didn't do any soldering in, in high school. I didn't do any computer repair. So this was my introduction. My introduction to soldering is I just bought a $300 PlayStation, a $35 mod chip, <laughs> and now I'm going to try to learn how to solder on it. Now, fortunately, in the early PlayStations, the solder points were very big and very easy to hit. In fact, uh, my technique was to get about a, a ball of solder about the size of a BB <laughs> and get it on the tip of my soldering iron, put the wire where it's supposed to go, and then just kind of glob it on there. Uh, and then, you know, once it cooled down, yank on the wire and make sure it was going to stay in place. So it didn't take a lot of technical skill, uh, you know, for the early ones, the, the four wire chips. Um, but once I had that installed, now... I knew that the next step was I was going to copy PlayStation games. I didn't want to download them because at this time I still had a dial-up modem. Uh, I, I, let's say it was a 56K at this point. I mean, this is probably 96, um, maybe 97. So either 33.6, maybe it was 33.6, I'm not sure. But um, uh, regardless, it was still a dial-up modem. And so um, the software that everybody used was called CDR Win, which if you've ever seen, um, they, it didn't make ISO files. It made two files. There was a, a bin and a Q file, the binary, and then you had a Q sheet that told uh, the, the drive how to burn that uh, binary file. So I went to Future Shop. Now, this is when I lived in Spokane, Washington. We don't have Future Shop here, but we had them up there, and it was our equivalent of Best Buy is the easiest way to explain it. And so I went to Future Shop and I bought a Turtle Beach CD-ROM drive. It was a 1X drive. That means it's single speed. And it was $500. So single speed means single speed. That means if you're burning a 74-minute CD, it takes 74 minutes. This thing was brutally slow. Uh, and so, and I bought a... I want to say 10 verbatim discs uh, because I had read that verbatim was the best brand for burning PlayStation games. So I bought 10 blanks and they were $6 each. <laughs> so I've now invested $560 uh, 
actually more than that because I have the uh, mod chip or whatever. So close to $600. You got 500 for the drive, 60 for the blanks, another 35 for the chip. So I'm in about 600 at this point. So I go home and uh, I don't think I had CDR win yet. I had whatever software came with the turtle beach drive. And uh, so anyway, I went through and I made the image. I rented a game or I think I, I'm sure I had, I think it was Tomb Raider is what I played around with. Cause I had bought Tomb Raider and I made an image of Tomb Raider and I burned it and it didn't work. So basically I wasted $6, but then I tried something else. I tweaked the options a little bit. I, I clicked some buttons and I burned a second copy and it didn't work either. And um, then I did the third and the fourth and the fifth and eventually the 10th and in, well, of course each one of these took, you know, an hour to burn. So I'm sure it wasn't one day, but over a course of two or three days, I went through $60 of blank CDs and I was crushed. You know, maybe the mod chip wasn't working right. Maybe, um, that, you know, I wasn't doing something with the software. I went back, I read everything. And one of the things I read was that when you burn PlayStation games, you have to burn them in what's called disk at once mode. Basically, you have to take uh, the entire disk, put it in one file, and then put it back on. But I was burning it in track uh, at once mode, which burns each track, which uh, doesn't work, which I was a $60 lesson. So, uh, and what made that worse is that Turtle Beach Drive that I had bought would not do disk at once mode. So, uh, I took it back to Future Shop and I ended up uh, upgrading to a Sony CD-ROM burner, which I think was another hundred, an extra hundred. I upgraded to that and I bought uh, another 10 blanks or something like that. I mean, I, I remember this, this is a lot of money. I mean, this was a lot of money back then. I mean, it's a lot of money now, but, um, you know, I, I was making, I don't know, uh, you know, 10, 15 bucks an hour, something like that. So this, I mean, this was literally months of, of saving up money. And, um, so I went back and bought it and I was able to using a CDR win. I was able to make an image and burn it back and put in my copy of Tomb Raider and turn it on. And lo and behold, it booted. So that was the first game that I was, uh, able to back up one that I already owned. Uh, but that started a long road for me in PlayStation games. Now, I, I know that this episode is supposed to be about mod chips, but I'm going to talk a little bit about the collection of burned PlayStation games that I built up. Um, I get, I don't know if it's OCD. I don't, it's um, def, definitely the obsessive part. When I find something like that, I wanted to own all the PlayStation games. I didn't want to just, you know, the ones I wanted to play or whatever. I wanted to get them all. If you've listened to any of my stuff about uh, Commodore, you know, this is a um, repeatable uh, thing <laughs> that that I do um, that I've, I've pretty much quelled over the last few years. I've, I kind of had to put a stop to it because it was really just um, taking over parts of my life. But... Um, but having that mod chip opened up all these different uh, worlds to me. First of all, import games. Suddenly I could play all these Japanese games. And I want to talk about street borders um, or street skaters, what it's known here in the U.S. I'm going to talk about street borders in just a minute. Um, and there were betas. I have some betas I want to talk about and homebrew games. And then there was just, you know, normal games that had been released that I could now, you know, 
copy and get copies and, and rent them and, and copy them or whatever. So, um, so Street Skater, I had heard about this game. It was a skateboarding type game. This is before Tony Hawk. And I wanted this game so bad. I actually found this game online and, uh, I, you know, I had a, a shell account for the internet. So I had logged into this shell account and I'd found the game. And so I had moved the game to my shell account. And then, so that goes really fast because you're going from like across T1s or T3s or whatever. And I was able to get this game, but now it was stored online. I had to download this game, uh, over my dial up modem. And it wasn't 56K, I'm sure of that. It must have been 33.6 or slower because um, I remember downloading this for about, I know it took at least two days. Uh, and every now and then, you know, the phone would hang up or reset or something. I would have to dial in and, and continue. I mean, it was a local phone call, but I just, I just wanted that game so bad and it wasn't available in the U.S. So that was the first thing. Um, that I got that was, you know, a, a Japanese release. And of course, um, I learned the hard way when you get a Japanese game, um, it's written in Japanese. <laughs> and, uh, a lot of the times the, you know, the controls weren't the same, like the, the, um, I don't remember exactly, but it was something like, um, you know, X for uh us was like, okay. And, and for Japanese games, that means go backwards or something. So I had a, a devil of a time figuring out the controls, but, um, but I, I remember getting that and that really opened my eyes to, um, you know, what was out there. Another thing that did that was, um, thrill kill. Now, if you know anything about PlayStation, you've probably heard of thrill kill. Thrill kill is a four player game that was never released because it is super violent. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, so it, it exists in beta. There are some ads for it out there, but for the most part, nobody's played it. Well, the beta copy got released out to the internet, and so if you had a mod chip, you could download this beta and play it. Now, the the selling point, uh, not selling because you couldn't buy it, but I guess the um, interest, if anybody wanted to play it, one is because it's really violent, and two, it's, it's a beta. It's an unreleased game, and so that seemed kind of exciting. It was like you were seeing... Um, something that the developers did not want you to see. And uh, the the engine that runs that was recycled into, I think, Wu-Tang. There was a Wu-Tang fighting game. So if you've played Wu-Tang, you've played Thrill Kill. I mean, there's a, a GIMP. <laughs> there's an S&M Dominatrix. There's all these people. Uh, you know, a guy with that's in a straight jacket that bites your face off. So, I mean, it's it's pretty gory, but it's gory, I mean, as far as 1995 PlayStation standards go. Um, but, uh, I remember getting that. There were some emulators that came out. None of the emulators back then were very good. The PlayStation, um, itself didn't have a lot of Ram to work with. Um, you know, so you could do eight bit stuff. You could play Nintendo games and stuff like that, but I don't remember there being a huge, uh, you know, emulation scene. I think there was uh MAME released for it, but, um, but for me, uh, you know, along with all that other stuff, it was, it was about getting the games. And, and now that I had a mod chip, I could get them for free. And the PlayStation was really the first modern system that I owned while it was still in stores. I mean, I I've mentioned this before, well, the Atari, I guess you could say. Um, but after the Atari 2600, I moved to computers we moved to the Apple two, and then I moved to the Commodore. So I didn't have an NES when everybody had one. In fact, I got my NES, um, in either 90 or 91 
when a friend of mine was selling it so he could buy a Super Nintendo. Uh, I didn't get a, I'm trying to think here. I didn't get my PlayStation until 90, maybe like the Christmas of 97, something like that. So, um, but, uh, and I know I didn't get, uh, I got my Super Nintendo in, uh, when I was working for Best Buy, which would have been, you know, like the early part of 95. So really I was, I was always behind the curve. So this is the first console that I owned while games were, you know, <laughs> still being released for it. And so that, that was kind of exciting for me. I could find the games online, um, but here's what happened to me is I really got addicted to, I fell right back into the thing that I'd fallen into with the Commodore and that was acquiring the games more than playing them. In fact, I would go rent them. There was a, a rental place, oh, 20 minutes from my house. So I would drive over there and rent a game, drive home, copy it, and then the next day drive home, take it. I would never play it while I had it, you know, but I would just drive to go get it. And then um, eventually I got a laptop. And so I would drive over there and then I would sit in the parking lot and copy the game and drop it in the, the night return thing. I wouldn't even leave, you know, their property <laughs> with the game. Uh, and then they would do things like they, I, they, um, they had 99 cent Tuesday where you could rent games for 99 cents on Tuesday and they would let me rent up to five. So then I would go get five games, uh, and I'd have my little list of what games I had and what games I needed. And then I'd go sit in the parking lot and rip all five games. And it, I mean, it took a while. I'd probably spend an hour sitting in their parking lot, you know, I'd drive around the back. And then when I was done, I'd take the games and put them in the, the night deposit box. So, uh, you know. I think what I learned now, looking back, um, almost none of those games work today. Uh, the CD-ROMs just didn't, they didn't last. Um, I had a lot of them stored in those vinyl books and they just, you know, I left them in the garage and they cooked or the, the silver, the bottom part, you know, just flaked off or whatever. And I spent so much time building a collection of stuff that was worthless. I mean, it's, I couldn't sell them all for one penny and most of them I've, I've thrown away since then, you know? So, um, it, now when I look at it, it just seems like a monumental waste of time. So, but, uh, at the time I really felt like I was building up this giant collection. I even, um, would get jewel cases, uh, and like print out the front and back covers. So I was, not only was I, making all these copies, but then I was printing out the front and back copies or the, the covers, cutting them out with scissors and putting them in so they would look like original. So, you know, when people came over, it would look like I had all these things, but ultimately I just had, you know, cheap copies of the real deal and I had cheap copies that didn't last. So anyway, um, as time went on, Sony began releasing new versions of the PlayStation. And you may know that there were different models. There was the uh, the 1001 and, and the 1500 series and all this. And, and, um, as time went on, Sony began implementing, uh, protection against the mod chips. And I remember playing, uh, I think it was Toomba. I'm pretty sure it was Toomba. And you go and talk to somebody and the person says, well, it's too bad. You'll never finish your quest because, this system has been modified or something like that. And I was like, what, what did this game just say? And, um, it was true that, uh, um, that some of the games began, uh, implementing copy protection against mod chips. And the way they were doing it is they would send the way I understand it. They, in the game, it would send an additional, 
system check for the software code uh, or for the country code, which is something that the system couldn't normally do. It could only do during boot up. But the mod chip would do it any time. So if the game sent sent out that request and the game and your system responded, then it knew that you had a mod chip. Uh, and so to get around that, they released better mod chips. And so that's why I was saying I wasn't sure how many wires because there were mod chips that had five wires. There were some that had four. There were some that had eight. There were some that had ten. I think the earliest ones had 10. By the time I got one, they were down to five or four or something. Maybe the fifth one, the fifth wire did something else. I don't know. Um, but, you know, so so the, it was kind of uh, this cat and mouse game of uh, Sony would change the PlayStation. The mod chip people would change their mod chips. Sony would release a new uh, version of the PlayStation. I think with the 5500 series of PlayStation, this is still, again, the original PlayStation uh, a friend of mine brought one over and said, hey, can you install a mod chip? I said, sure, no problem. And I disassembled it and opened up, and the entire underside of the board was covered with, like, black epoxy. <laughs> it was like rubber, and Sony had been covering the bottom of the boards, which is where all the uh, the contacts were, where you were supposed to modify it. So, But you could scrape that stuff off, or they found alternate points to, to solder stuff. So it was really this, this big thing that went back and forth, but... Um, um, the, like I said, that original mod chip I bought was $35 in 97, someone reverse engineered it and they posted the code online. And all of a sudden everybody started making mod chips and you could get them for like $10. Um, and there were a lot of rumors that putting a mod chip in your PlayStation would hurt it like that. It would make the full motion video skip, but that was really just the drive. It was a fault with the drives and not really a fault with mod chips or that it would wear out the laser. And really, I wonder if some of those rumors weren't started by Sony themselves or by, you know, people that work for the company, because really there's no way the system knows that it's a, a copy. But, um, but anyway, those rumors were out there, but I never had any. In fact, I still have my very original Sony PlayStation. I have one game in it, uh, which is Tony Hawk two. It's my favorite PlayStation game. And, um, every now and then I fire it up and it still works great. So whatever, um, whatever was supposed to, uh, break on my PlayStation by having a mod chip in didn't break on mine. So, um, I don't have a modified Sega Saturn, but, um, Basically, a lot of what I said about the PlayStation applied for the Saturn as well. There are Saturn mod chips out there. Uh, the the uh, Saturn mod chip scene seems to be more interested in uh, the country code thing because I guess there were a lot of Japanese shooter type games for the, the Sega Saturn. So a lot of importers were really wanting to um, uh, play those games. But um, but yeah, the, so Sega Saturn owners went through the same thing that uh, we as, as PlayStation owners did. That brings us to the sixth generation of consoles, which um, might be, uh, as far as mod chips go, maybe my favorite uh, generation. That is the Sega Dreamcast, Nintendo's GameCube, the Sony PlayStation 2, and the Microsoft Xbox. So let's talk a little bit about mod chips on the sixth generation of consoles. Now, first of all, you have the Dreamcast. The Dreamcast um, relied on security through obscurity <laughs> uh, by inventing their own layout for games called a GD-ROM, which was supposed to store a gig of information instead of a normal CD-ROM, which was, what, uh, 700 meg, roughly. 
Um, and so they said, well, nobody will ever have GD ROMs, you know, GD ROM burners and GD blanks or whatever. So we are protected from piracy. But uh, what they didn't do was hide the boot code and also the um, Dreamcast would boot things. I believe it's in Windows CE. And so someone wrote a uh, booter in Windows CE for the Dreamcast and suddenly it was game over. They released boot disks and suddenly you could, um, you couldn't read a GD-ROM in your computer, but you could put one in in the Dreamcast and use the network adapter and then dump it over the network to your computer and then burn it back on a CD-ROM because most of them didn't take up more than 700 megs of space. Or you could just download them. But uh, it was over very quick for the Dreamcast, and actually it pretty much knocked Sega out of the hardware console business. There's also uh, the Nintendo GameCube, and they used both obscurity, uh, security through obscurity and security through minority. Uh, the Sega, Sega, the uh, Nintendo GameCube used a mini DVD, which was more difficult to find on store shelves. So they thought, oh, well, people won't be able to burn those. Uh, but what people did was make bigger cases <laughs> for the Nintendo GameCube. And then you just took the guts out of your GameCube and you put it in this bigger case, you know, or, or uh, it had a different lid and you would put the lid on it. So um, there were mod chips for the GameCube and... Um, I don't remember if I had one or not. I, I know there was an exploit you could use uh, where you could stream games over the network, and it never worked very well for me, but um, I don't I don't know that I ever modded my GameCube. Uh, for me, though, this generation starts with PlayStation 2 and the Xbox. So let's talk a little about the PlayStation 2. Uh, the PlayStation 2 is the first console that I ever camped out for. My wife and I went... And took lawn chairs the night before the PlayStation 2 launch. I was big into writing about video games at that point. I was big into games. And we went and sat in lawn chairs from 10 p.m. until our local Walmart opened at 6 a.m. And we got PlayStations number 1 and 2 from Mustang, Oklahoma. In fact, um, they were checking your driver's license because you were only supposed to get one. But uh, one of us hadn't changed ours to our new address. So it had two different addresses on it. So we were able to each buy one. Uh, and then we sold the other one. Uh-huh. Um, so there was no mod chip for a while for the PlayStation 2. And then they came out with the Neo key. And the Neo key was, there were two versions. There was an internal mod chip that you could solder to your PlayStation. Uh, or there was a USB solution, which is what I got. So this USB thing plugged into the front. Most of it worked through this uh, USB box, but there was you had to solder one wire, but it wasn't that difficult. The Neo Key only supported uh, games in CD-ROM format, but at that time, lots of games were being released um, as DVDs, and so you had to go online and find people who would take it, and then they would like, you know, scrunch the, the music quality down and do all these things and and get it where it would fit on a CD. It was really a pain in the butt, and and this is for me. This starts um, a a repeatable, what's the best way to put this? How much are you willing to put up with to steal games? <laughs> In other words, um, you know, now I have a good job, you know, and I when, when Grand Theft Auto 5 came out, I really wanted to play Grand Theft Auto 5, 
And um, I, I had a PlayStation 3, but I thought, eh, I want to put one in my uh, extra game room. And so I just went and I bought, uh, they were having the, the special, the Grand Theft Auto V, the bundle, with a PlayStation 3. And so I took it, actually, I bought it right before I went on a road trip, and I, I took it, you know. And I, I played the game, and I probably played it more than, than the games, you know, if I've downloaded it or something like that. So, um, but, you know, I'm just at that point in my life where if it's, I, I believe in a product, and I think it's a good product, and I know they put a lot of money into it, then if I know that I'm going to play it, then I'll pay money for it. But I was not at that point um, when the PlayStation 2 came out. And I was willing to jump through all these hurdles and do all these you know, kooky things to try to get these games to play. You know, I was willing to go online and download like crippled, you know, releases that were uh, shrunken down in size and this and that just to, um, you know, because of gosh, look at all this money I'm saving, you know, but in reality you're, you're getting an inferior product. Um, so I had the Neo key and then, um, the, a new mod chip came out that would run DVDs and it was called the Messiah. So uh, I found a guy that wanted to buy uh, a PlayStation 2, and he was happy with the Neo Key. So I bought, well, uh, I should back up here. A friend of mine uh, also had a PlayStation 2, and so he bought a Messiah, uh, which is the Messiah mod chip, and we were going to install it. I was like, dude, no problem. I installed the PlayStation 1. I can install one on the PlayStation 2. He orders this thing, and it has 24 wires. It is ridiculous. And not only is there 24 wires, but if you've ever seen like a CPU like that's soldered to a motherboard, this would have like 10 wires on every single one of those different legs all next to one. I mean, my soldering skills, I couldn't do this. We tried and I messed up his PlayStation. I think we ended up splitting, you know, the damage half and half or something. Um, and I felt really bad about it. But after that, I was like, this has surpassed my skill level. And so when I bought mine, I bought one online that someone had already modified. Um, it was just um, a, a lot easier, you know. Uh, I did not want to, uh, you know, risk doing that to mine. So anyway, um, later on with the uh, PlayStation 2, there was also a util. Well, they, they, they sold a hard drive adapter that would slide into the back. Uh, and I bought that, and then there was a software that you could get called HD Loader. And with that and your modded thing, you could put um, games on the hard drive and just play them directly off the hard drive. And I think this may be the first time that I saw that a mod chip actually increased, uh, you know, the functions that were available on a console. I mean, this actually made the PlayStation 2 better. You know, I didn't have to go dig out my games and find, you know, where they were or whatever. I could just put the ones that I liked on the hard drive and play them right off the hard drive. So it actually, you know, increased the features that were available. Now, the Xbox, uh, I knew right off the bat. I looked online, and this is the original Xbox. There was the uh, Enigma mod chip, I think, was the first one I looked at. There was also an extender it had 29 wires. I was like, there's no chance of me ever doing that. Um, and then the second gen was uh, 11 wires or something like that. And there was like third gen and fourth gen or whatever. But I did the same thing that I did with my PlayStation. I bought one online that someone had already modified. And um, the Xbox was the same way um, with uh, 
like the PlayStation 2 with HD loader is that you could put dry, you know games directly on the console's hard drive. In fact, you could upgrade the hard drive, get a much bigger hard drive, and put games and play them on. And not only that, uh, you could put emulators, you could put all this stuff on there. And so that uh, you could even put on um, Xbox Media Center, XB, uh, Xbox, XBMC, Xbox Media Center. And that would let you stream movies and do all that. I mean... Uh, for a long time, the Xbox was like the center of my, uh, you know, home entertainment center. You could just go in, turn on the Xbox, go down to emulators. I could play Commodore games, Atari games, Nintendo stuff, or I could play Xbox stuff. Um, and, uh, it even had a FTP server built in. So you could go to FTP and I could FTP stuff directly over the network to it. Um, so again, uh, just a lot of increased functionality and stuff that you think, Okay, if this console could do this, why didn't Microsoft do this in the first place? Why didn't Microsoft let us, um, you know, purchase emulators or put emulators on here or whatever? So, uh, and and that's something that we're really going to see in the next generation um, with the Wii mod chips. So, uh, but that's PlayStation and Xbox, and that brings us to seventh gen. That's the last gen. Uh, seventh gen includes the Xbox 360, the PlayStation 3, and then Nintendo Wii. Now there was a significant difference between sixth gen and second or seventh gen is that sixth gen had the ability to go online, but seventh gen pretty much requires it. Um, you're going to have pretty limited functionality from a PlayStation three or an Xbox 360 if you don't ever go online with those consoles. Um, and these consoles, including the Wii as well, uh, require firmware upgrades from time to time to make them compatible with new software. And these firmware upgrades have a uh, second agenda, and that is to defeat mod chips and hacks that have been applied to consoles. So we'll talk a little bit about the Wii first. Um, I modified my Wii pretty early on. There were uh, mod chips available, and they were not... Uh, the first ones that came out were solder ones. The one that I bought was actually a piggyback chip, I guess you call it, where it just slid over another chip. And that was pretty much all I had to do. Um, I'm trying to remember here all the things that you get from modding a Wii. Um, first of all, you get what's called the emulation channel. And you can add emulators to the Wii. And you can run all these off of an SD card. You know, the original Wii had the SD card slot in the front. So if you modify the Wii, um, you know, we talked about adding functionality. Right off the bat, you can install uh, emulators. You can also enable DVD playback. Now, this is another thing that I don't really, I guess it probably was a, a licensing type issue or something. But um, the uh, if you go enable this, you can watch DVD movies on your Wii. But straight, you know, stock out of the box, you can't. So that's... Another thing that you, I mean, it just makes me wonder why you weren't able to do that, unless it's a, a licensing issue, probably for the DVD rights or whatever. Um, it also, obviously, allows you to play copied Wii games. Um, but with USB loader, you can play copied Wii games like the ISOs off of a USB hard drive. This is amazing to me because... Uh, when I did this, I had two small children that loved to play Wii. And we had, I bought Rock Band. Uh, you may have heard of it. It's a game that has big plastic guitars and drums that are filling up uh, thrift stores and garage sales everywhere today. Uh, but at the time, it was a very big deal, that and Guitar Hero. 
And my kids would go there and play. And then when I would go play, I would notice that the songs are starting to skip or the game would lock up. And when I look at my CDs, they were all scratched up because the kids would take them out and just throw them on the table or not put them up or use them as coasters. Oh, it would drive me crazy. And with the USB loader, you could put the ISO of that on the USB thing or on the USB drive. And the kids go in and... When they launch a USB loader, it looks like a store. It's got the, it even has the artwork of every game. And the kids scroll through with the Wii Mote and they click at the game they want to play and it loads up. It's, it's simply amazing. And when you see that, I, Nintendo had to be kicking themselves in the butt. I mean, why they wouldn't include, I mean, obviously, you know, for the piracy reason, they might think it's not a good idea. But if they could have locked that stuff down to load games off that hard drive, it's just a genius thing, especially if you have little kids. Um, and it also allows you to play backed up, uh, GameCube games. So all those, uh, GameCube games that I wasn't able to try out when I owned the GameCube. Now, all of a sudden I could try those out. And, um, uh, I own, uh, I don't know, a couple dozen original GameCube games, but there were a few that I just, uh, weren't able to track down or never ran across. And so it's been fun to try those out as well. But the Wii, the Wii and the original Xbox, I mean, modding those just breathes new life into those things. And, and frankly, I don't even, uh, I mean, the Xbox I could see, but the Wii, I don't even see owning one without modding it. It just adds so much to it. Then you have the Xbox 360. Um, I got an Xbox 360. I bought it used from a friend. And I decided to mod it because I wanted to see how to mod it. <laughs> Uh, I had no no interest really in the software library. I wanted to play um, Burnout Paradise and, and uh, a few of the games. I already had those, but I really wanted to see what um, uh, was uh, you know modding the 360 was all about. And actually, there were a couple of ways to do uh, to mod the 360. One was you could get a mod chip, just like all the other consoles I've been talking about, or you could actually upgrade the firmware on the drive, and that's what I ended up doing. I had to buy a special SATA controller because I guess the one that I had didn't have the right chipset on it, but I bought a, a SATA drive controller uh, online for like maybe 10 bucks and a, a couple of really long SATA cables <laughs> and uh, stretched it over to the Xbox and upgraded the firmware and all of a sudden I could play backed up games and it works pretty good. Um, apparently this is something that Microsoft can detect. And so if you go online, uh, you can get your machine banned from Xbox Live. <clears throat> they will ban your Mac address and you will never, ever, ever be able to go online again with that console. So sad. Um, so, and this becomes that, that uh, cat and mouse game that I talked about earlier. Um, newer games require you to upgrade your 360 firmware. And so when you upgrade, you never know is that firmware the one that's going to detect whatever kind of mod you've put in your system that will prevent your system from working or whatever. So that's always a risk uh, that you have to take into consideration when you start talking about modding consoles. Finally, there's the PlayStation 3. And the reason that I am talking about that this subject came up really is that I just modified my PlayStation 3 um, a little over a month ago. I just bought a three key mod chip. I, um, for pretty much for the same reason that I did the 360, I have had a three, uh, PlayStation three in here. It's collecting dust. And I thought, huh, I wonder, um, if there's mod chips for it and, and what all you could do and, and, uh, you know, does it increase functionality or whatever? Well, I got to tell you, first of all, 
my experience with the three key is that it decreases functionality. Um, I just bought the three key. It was, I want to say $79. And then I bought an additional thing. That's a little LCD screen that comes with it. So total, it cost me about, about $120. I got it. It says that it's a solderless installation and that is true. Um, but there were still a lot of wires. I had to plug things in here and there and move stuff around. Um, you know, use electrical tape to tape this thing down. And when you're all done, uh, if you put an original in the PlayStation three, the one that I have now with the three key, uh, and I have since fixed this, but when I installed it, it was like this. Um, it won't play originals and it also wouldn't play my movies. Um, so they have since released a firmware update for the actual three key that will allow me now to play my original games. It still won't play movies. So I've kind of like made it worse. <laughs> um, but what it does do is allow you to play ISOs like the Wii off of an external hard drive. Now these ISOs have to be in a special form, uh, that is not the format that everybody that's released PlayStation games has ever used. <laughs> so because of that, you have to download something else and you have to apply these with patches that are only provided by three key. And in addition to that, I'm trying to think of what else here. Um, yeah, I don't know. I had something else about that, but basically, so you download these, then you apply a patch, then you copy the ISO over um, I just to try it out, I downloaded a couple different games and then I went and found and there aren't patches available. So I can't play those. Oh, I know what I was going to say is that, um, if you want to copy or back up your own games, you have to buy an additional piece that I did not buy, which is another 40 or $50. So, um, I can't even back up. I mean, when I couldn't play originals, I couldn't even back up the originals I had to play them, you know, in ISO format. So, um, you know, this kind of brings me back to the topic I talked a little bit about with the PlayStation 2, and that is how many hoops are you willing to jump through to steal software? Um, one of the games that I tried on the PlayStation 3, one of the ones that I downloaded was Madden, I think 2010 or 2011, one or the other. Um, you can find Madden online. I looked online for Amazon. You can find it for a penny plus shipping. Uh, so it doesn't really seem to be worth the effort. I've looked on Craigslist. There are people all over the place selling games for, you know, in lots for five bucks each or three bucks each, or, you know, maybe the good ones are 10 bucks each. Really? That seems pretty affordable, you know? So I don't, um, I don't know. I, I think in the old days, it was something that was fun. It was exciting. Um, you were, you know, sticking it to the man <laughs> and, um, now it just seems like to me, it's easier to just buy them. You know, it's easy to just go get them. I'd rather have the original sitting on the shelf than a bunch of files on a hard drive or whatever. That's just me. But um, the collector in me, um, you know, I, I think just likes the physical media looking at them. The eighth generation of consoles uh, so far, uh, there are no mod chips. There's the uh, Xbox One and the PlayStation four. And I don't know that there will be mod chips for those that work, um, long-term, you know, I mean, what, uh, Sony did with the PlayStation three was, um, people would come up with software hacks that would allow you to load copy games. 
And then immediately they would patch those holes with new firmware revisions. And they make those firmware revisions mandatory. When you buy a new game, if you don't install the new firmware, then you can't play your game. So to me, that means it's it's mandatory. Um, technically, it's not mandatory. You can take that $60 game you just bought and put it on the shelf and never play it. But if you want to play the games that you own, it is mandatory. Uh, so, you know, with the PlayStation 4, with the Xbox One, there could be mod chips. There could be ways to get around them. But it it seems um, like this, this uh, cat and mouse game will go on forever. And that Microsoft and Sony will continue to issue patches and, and updates and make it to where it's more and more difficult to where it's just not worth the time to do. The Wii U has not itself been hacked, but the uh, parts of the Wii U that um, were from the original Wii, I believe, have been hacked. I believe you can play um, Wii games on it, and I know you can play GameCube games on it. So um, I don't know. Nintendo doesn't seem to have the same level of security as some of the other consoles, but also their fan base is a lot more loyal. So you don't hear a lot about people you know, wanting pirate copies of Super Mario Brothers, I think people are willing to buy that because uh, a lot of the Nintendo games have, um, you know, replayability and staying power, and people play those for years. So I know that uh, on our original Wii, we have uh, the new Super Mario Brothers, and, and my kids still play that all the time, you know. So so anyway, uh, I think that pretty much sums up where we are, where we came from with mod chips, and uh, where we came from and where we are. The future, who knows? Who knows if... Um, uh, somebody, I'm sure there's some kid out there somewhere that's working on the PlayStation 4, so good luck to him. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of You Don't Know Flack. If you'd like to send me any feedback, you can email me directly at robohara at robohara.com. You can get a hold of me on Facebook or on Twitter. On Twitter, I'm at Commodore. Or you can leave me a voice message on the You Don't Know Flack voice mailbox, which is 405 486 Y-D-K-F for You Don't Know Flags. That wraps up this episode, and hopefully I will see you again shortly.